Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, an avid user of cookbooks. In fact, I just attended a pasta making class with one of my favorite cookbook authors, Linda Miller Nicholson. Her book is called Pasta Pretty Please. I think I saw you post this on your Instagram some videos from your pasta making class. I did. It's like brightly colored pastas. Yes, they're multicolored pasta. It's really fun. It looked amazing. It looked like Play-Doh. It, it, but it, it wasn't. Well, it's just as edible as Play-Doh, but it tastes better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Eliza Rosenberry. I love cookbooks, too. And I received a cookbook as a gift for Christmas this year that's from this bakery in Boston called Flower. The owner of the bakery is Joanne Chang, and this was her first cookbook. It was published, like, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I made a cheddar scallion scone recipe this weekend while I was reading the book that we're about to discuss. You know, I saw that on Instagram, too. Where the heck is my scone? (laughs) Why didn't you bring me one? Tavia, they don't keep. Uh, Well, you know. All right. Well, call me. Next time, I'll just (laughs) come over. (laughs) Speaking of baking... On today's show, the lives of a baker, a novelist, and a food blogger intersect on Block Island one summer in The Islanders, the most recent novel by Meg Mitchell Moore. We'll be speaking with her later in the show. But first, we wanted to share this awful review of the podcast. Joe Curley says, this podcast focuses too much on books. It would be better if they talked about something else once in a while. Wow. Uh... Thank you, Joe. Eliza, I don't quite know what to say here. This is very interesting feedback for a books podcast. I guess we could discuss baking more on future episodes. Baking or I don't know, but okay, I can't take it anymore. April Fools. No one <laughs> no one left us a bad review. But I am not kidding when I say to listeners, if you do post a review, good or bad, we may read it on the show. And now we present to you The Islanders Abridged. Disgraced author Anthony Puckett has retreated to a friend's crumbling beach house on Block Island after being accused of plagiarism. Joy, a single mother raising a teenage daughter, runs the island's only bakery, Joy Bombs, which specializes in whoopie pies. As the summer begins, her life is thrown off balance when a food truck also selling desserts, sets up shop on the island and is a hit with locals and tourists. Lou has come to the island for the summer with her two young sons and her interfering mother-in-law. Her husband, a busy surgeon, spends his days working at a hospital on the mainland while Lou secretly writes and takes pictures for her growing food blog. Block Island is far too small for Anthony, Joy, and Lou to not meet. Lou and Anthony become friends after one of her sons wanders into the ocean and Anthony saves him. Joy's 13-year-old daughter, Maggie, babysits for Lou's children. And Anthony and Joy start dating, even though he doesn't tell her that he has a young son and is going under a pseudonym. As secrets are revealed, the trio must decide whether their relationships can survive the truth. So, Eliza, what did you think of the book? First of all, I love when a book makes me hungry. (laughs) I did a lot of, as discussed, baking and snacking while I was reading about whoopie pies and French macarons and Lou's food blog and all of the amazing recipes she's baking and testing for the blog. 
Um, so that was super fun to read. Oh, my gosh. I really appreciated that as well. It didn't make me hungry, but it did, I agree, make me want to, like, get into the kitchen and start baking. One of the things that I really appreciated is the way we're going to go from, like, light food topics. I'm going to dive right in. I really like the way that Meg writes about the ambivalence of motherhood. Um, Lou's character and Joy's really demonstrated the fear and the insecurity that parents can feel. And, you know, as someone who doesn't have kids, I really brought it home for me. I really got it. Um, It seems like Meg might be making a point about the choices women have to face. Mm -hmm. She definitely put some pretty weighty feminist words into Lou's mouth about working and mothering and trying to do both. Relatedly, I really liked how the the relationship between Joy and her teenage daughter, Maggie, was depicted in the book, the the sort of struggles that they have, because it's just the two of them on this island. They're really independent, but they're very dependent on each other. Um, but of course, Maggie's growing up and getting older, and so there's all these tensions of like being a teenager, and I mean, how awful that can be for everyone involved. Um, And so I really appreciated the way that um, Meg Mitchell Moore portrayed that. And I believe she's a mother of daughters herself. So I want to ask her about that, too. Mm, Real life experience. Mm. Um, Which which may play into one of my favorite scenes, which it was one of my favorites because it just broke my heart and just brought me back to that feeling like that 13-year-old awkward girl who has a crush on the unattainable young man. And there's this scene where Maggie is spying on her summer crush. Mm -hmm. And it's towards the end of the book. And it is so poignant. And it just really captured that experience for me. Oh, my God. I was cringing. (laughs) I know. I was cringing. And I was like, it's okay. You're going to be okay. (laughs) This is a really small thing, but it often bothers me a lot when I'm reading if it's done poorly and I think Meg Mitchell Moore did a really good job with this there's a lot of cell phones that are used in the book everybody's always on their phone they're texting they're calling they're emailing and the fact that it didn't disrupt the book at all you know it felt like a natural way that the characters were communicating Um, I really was grateful for that because it can be so awful when someone's like And then I received a text message. You know, it's just like it can be it can feel so inauthentic in a book when you try to insert technology. Um, But I think she did a really good job with it. Yeah, it can really thud hard, like like bad dialogue. Like who would ever say that? Yeah, exactly. Um, I didn't even notice. So I guess that means she did a really good job with it. Oh, yeah. Good point. You know, I think in addition to dealing with all these weighty sort of feminist or women's issues in the book, with, with sort of this very light touch, she also definitely handles the trust issues that arise in couples. There, there are two romantic relationships in the novel, each are at different stages of, the, of their relationships. And there were some scenes where each, each couple had scenes of conflict, mm-hmm. and they totally rang true for me. Like, yeah. this is how people talk to each other when they're frustrated. This is what it sounds like when you're a new couple. This is mm-hmm. what it sounds like when you're an established couple. And I, I was really impressed with that. And again, it didn't stand out as anything that was thuddy or, yeah. you know, awkward. She's really good at writing communication. That would be the bottom line. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really excited to talk with her about all of these issues in the book. Quick reminder that we love to hear from you. Please join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and post your own questions to authors who appear on our show. 
You can find us there at facebook.com slash groups slash the book club girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the Islanders audiobook. Today, we're joined by Meg Mitchell Moore, whose book, The Islanders, is out now. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, Meg. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. We have a ton of fans of the Islanders who have sent in a bunch of great questions for you, so we have a lot to get through. Um, But to kick things off, Fran from our Facebook group wanted to know, what inspired you to write this novel? We always like to get the story behind the book, so this is a good one to start with. Sure. For this novel, I think it was threefold, which was two or three of the characters came to mind pretty quickly, and then the setting. So all of those things work together. And I, the story I usually tell about this is how, when I was writing a previous novel, I did one of those masterclass online classes with a famous thriller novelist, and I thought I would take the class and learn how to write a thriller and make millions of dollars. <laughs> but instead, I just became really interested in the life of this author because he was talking from his mansion and talking about all of the ways that he came up with his ideas. And he said something really casual about how he wrote in the morning and then he went and and had lunch with his wife. And that just, in my mind, spurred the whole story because I wanted to know what was it like to be his wife and where did they have lunch and did they go out to lunch and who cooked and who did the dishes. And I had so many questions about that. And that's sort of where I came up with the character of Leonard Puckett. And who isn't, he's not one of the voices in the story, but his son, Anthony, who's also a famous writer, is one of the voices. So that all came from that very small thing where I thought I would learn how to write thrillers. And by the way, I still haven't learned how to write a thriller, and I don't think I'll ever know how to write a thriller. But um, that's where that came. And so from there, I sort of got the idea of the other two main characters, one of whom is Joy, who is the baker who makes the whoopie pies. The other is a food blogger who is a stay-at-home mom posing as a stay-at-home dad. And I got that idea from a recipe that I found online once for an instant pot mac and cheese that I still make all the time. And it was on a blog by a, a dad. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. I bet this blog gets a different kind of attention because mm. it's written by a dad. So that's where I came up with that idea. I, I love that. Lou. And then separately, I had the Block Island setting, which became crucial to the novel, which was a place I had been interested in visiting. And when I visited it, I realized it was the perfect setting to pull all of these pieces together. So it's so funny that you ended your your answer talking about Block Island because that is literally the next question we have for you. Barbara from the Facebook group asks, how important was the island setting to the novel? Oh, so important. It's so important. It's the whole novel, really. I think what's wonderful about setting a novel on an island is that islands are are really hard hard to get to. They're hard to leave. You have to really plan for it if you're going to be on an island. And so I wanted to put these characters in a place where it wasn't easy to get to. It wasn't easy to leave. And I had this, this character, Anthony Puckett, who was escaping from this bad thing that he'd done. And he chose this island as the place to go, thinking that he would get away from it all. But in short order, all of these people from his life end up <laughs> following him there, and he can't actually get away. But I think having that setting really pulled all those pieces together. So funny because we just we just spoke with Stephen P. Kiernan about his historical novel, The Baker's Secret, which also took place in a small seaside town. And it, it was interesting how that sense of place resonated in his book and I, you know, I feel like this novel wouldn't have worked if it was set in someplace like Boston or even a suburban town. Yeah, like a bigger place that's like more connected 
it just felt like it, right? I mean, it, to me, it felt like it needed to be like this remote, small kind of place. Right. I think that I think that's key to it. And I think, and I really wanted a very summary setting. And Block Island has a population of, I think, a thousand during the wow. year, and it swells to whatever it swells to during the summer. I don't know the number exactly, but it has a lot of day trippers, and then a lot of people who are there for the whole summer. And I think those elements, I'm always interested in. I've written about this in other books about a summer town when the summer people are there and when the summer people aren't there. I think it's a really interesting setting for any story. I totally agree. Turning towards a question that's a bit more urgent, Vashna from the Facebook group asked the question that Tavia and I and all of our listeners are wondering, how many whoopie pies did you taste test before writing about joy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I've been a longtime fan of the whoopie pie. <laughs> There's actually a place in my town in Newburyport, Massachusetts called Chococo, which specializes in these mini whoopie pies. So that's where I got the idea for it. And I've I've been eating these whoopie pies since this business was opened years ago. And they're fantastic. And they're really small. So you can pretend that you're not mm. really eating a dessert. And I was I think I came up with the name of the bakery, which is called Joy Bombs. I came up with the name first before I knew what the Joy Bombs would be. And then I thought, well, it has to be something small and wonderful. And then I realized that these mini whoopie pies that they sell in my town would be perfect for it. So I did have to, unfortunately, mm. taste a lot more to you know, make sure that I got them right. <laughs> and I visited that the people who own the bakery are fabulous and they took me behind that they showed me how it all works and they gave me a tour of their kitchen and they let me ask them all kinds of questions the oh, whole cool. way through and they were just fabulous and we 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 even hosted the book lunch party there when um when the book That's came so out nice. last year. Well thank you for doing that very important research for all of us. <laughs> thank so, you. So um speaking of Joy and Joy Bombs, her daughter Maggie is such a delightful young woman. She reminds me of my 13-year-old niece a little. How did your own experiences as a parent help shape the novel. Oh, yeah, Maggie. I love her. So she, yeah, she's a 13-year-old girl, and I have three daughters who are right now, this minute, almost 13, almost 15, and just turned 17. (laughs) So when I started this book, I guess it was two years ago, so just subtract two from all those numbers, but I am for sure familiar with girls, and I... I just loved Maggie. I started, I think the first draft of the book, she was 11, and she was just this very sweet 11-year-old, and there's such a huge difference between an 11-year-old girl and a 13-year-old girl in all kinds of scary but also interesting ways. And so I think in subsequent drafts, I thought she's too young. I want her to be more on the verge of some of these teenage things where it's a little scary for the mom. And she's starting, you know, she has a crush on this boy who's there for the summer. And she's starting to have friends who are vaping and all those sorts of things, which Eleven was a little too young for. So I I made her older and she came alive for me. And I just love her. She has those t-shirts. I can't think of any of them now, but she's always wearing these t- these t-shirts that she with these clever little sayings, and she's just I I just had so much fun with her. So she is not any of my daughters. I never actually write about my kids, but I take things I observe because I'm just around I'm around girls all the time. <laughs> so I take little things that I notice about what how how girls talk to each other and how the friendships are and what sorts of pressures are going on at school, and I kind of weave them in here and there. We were talking before. We started this interview, Eliza and I were talking, and one of I was telling her that one of my favorite scenes in the book is the scene where Maggie is spying on her crush. 
That was just what I just thought it was oh, so poignant. she poignant. falls down the stairs at the beach. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So hard. I know. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because he really likes the older girl because she's 16 and beautiful, which is, that's yeah. what We've all been there. <laughs> but that's funny because that set of steps is very well known in, on Black Island. And you walk down, I think it's 103 or 105. It's a lot of steps. Wow. And it's beautiful. And I just thought something big has to happen on these steps. And I had that in my mind from the very beginning but I didn't know what it would be and then eventually I decided to have Maggie have her moment there. I know, I know. My I just (laughs) was brought right back to my 13-year-old awkwardness. I just, oh. I know. It's such an awful age. It's a really tricky age so it's fun to write about Mm. but it's not that much fun to live through. (laughs) We all made it out alive. (laughs) We did, that's true. Susie wrote to us on our Book Club Girls Facebook group and wants to know, Meg, how long does it take you to write a novel? Well, it depends on the novel. I've recently put myself with my newest contract on a book a year schedule, so now it will take a year. <laughs> it will have to take a year or less. I think for for the Islanders, I was in the middle of changing publishers, so I had a little bit more time, but I would say I try to write a draft in maybe six months or so, and then I spend a lot of time revising after that. I write really, really messy first drafts, so it usually takes almost as long as it took to write it, to revise it, and to rewrite. So it depends a little. I'm trying to get that, I'm trying to get that timeline down a little bit, but I would say in that ballpark. You're on the Leonard Puckett schedule. (laughs) No, he's many books a year. I could never be on his schedule. But he has That's help. That's right. You know? right. He has help. He's got help. <laughs> but lucky us, a book a year from Meg Mitchell Moore. Right on. That's good news. Well, for the next few years, we'll see. We'll see if I survive <laughs> it. Yeah. The other things I appreciated about this novel was the way that you handled the characters. You let them fall down and pick themselves back up. And even the unlikable ones grow a little bit. And it was hard for me to tell. Who's the bad guy in this novel? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think something I struggle with is I, I don't tend to make anybody all the way bad. And some, sometimes you do need somebody who's all the way bad. You just need a villain. So I think I think that Leonard is the probably least good one of everybody, but I wouldn't even call him bad. And in very early drafts, Anthony Puckett, the son, was coming across as very unlikable, but he wasn't supposed to. So that was the key. I had to make him... Have have he he made mistakes, stupid mistakes, and he took a long time to own up to them. And I had to make him still likable, and that took a really really long time. I think some characters you instantly have empathy or sympathy for, and with Anthony, I had to work to get there. And I had early readers tell me, "No, he's just he's just so unlikable. Why would I want to read about him?" So I had to really make him vulnerable and have there be a few things that the that the reader would be rooting for for him. Yeah, that's a fine line to walk because you want you you also want to communicate that he did something bad and made a mistake and that you know th- people other than him, than himself you know suffered because of it um but yeah by the end i mean you really feel like he's redeemed himself you know i mean i at least felt that way thank you you're listening to the book club girl podcast where our guest this week is meg mitchell moore whose book the islanders is out now you can read more about meg's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, we ask Meg about her literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by The Shape of Family by Shilpi Somaya Gowda. 
whose name you might recognize because she was a guest on one of our recent episodes talking about her novel, Secret Daughter. Her new book, The Shape of Family, is an intimate portrayal of four people torn apart by tragedy and the difficult journey to find their way back to one another. It's available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. Joy clings so fiercely to her independence in this novel, and I think... You know, she's really a self-made woman, and she's so proud of, you know, her relationship with her daughter. It's really just the two of them. And she's proud that she makes her own money and she has her own business. And, you know, I think her sort of getting into this relationship with Anthony, you know, she's sort of on this journey of, like, how much do I trust someone else? Um, And it's really hard for her, especially because of Anthony's particular situation. Um, And so I'm curious, what what do you think readers will take away from Joy's journey Oh, that's a good question. I think, yeah, I didn't want her to be somebody who needed the relationship to be happy. I wanted her to be somebody who was mm. already happy and could have this relationship as something additional in her life. So I think that that's a fine line right there. You're right. And I I would like people just to come out on her side and be rooting for her, but also know that if things with Anthony don't work out in the future, she's going to be okay. You know, she does. She has her business and she has her daughter and she has those moments where she thinks, well, well, what will I do for the rest of my life? And that's why I wanted her to have something else in her life, but I didn't want it to – I didn't want a typical, typical romance where the woman is only happy once she finds the man, but I did want them to have a real and true relationship. Yeah, I loved that. I think you did that really beautifully in the book. Thank you. We were talking earlier actually about how I, I said that I feel like the the conflicts between the couples when they when they disagree and they argue and they get frustrated with with each other. I thought that they were very realistic. That none there were no lines of dialogue that sort of stood out for me. Like they just really. It seemed like how I argue with my partner. <laughs> yeah, it all really flows. Oh, yeah, I love that. Hi, I have a question for Meg Mitchell-Moore about the Islanders and her character, Lou. She seems to be a feminist voice in the book. Do you think that she sees herself as a feminist? Thanks so much. That's a great question. I think she sees herself as a sort of feminist without really knowing what the current definition of feminism is. And there's this one thing, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I think I had her as having had girls in her college who were what they thought were real true feminists, and you had to be a certain kind of feminist. And Lou is struggling because she is in a traditional marriage, and she is the primary caretaker of these two young boys while her husband is right now making a lot of the money. So she is struggling with that. So I think she, I don't think Lou would want to be labeled as a feminist specifically, but I think that her ideals and what she's reaching for are a sort of modern kind of feminism is how I'd probably put it. But who knows what feminism is? It's really confusing. I, 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 don't, I don't always know the answer to that myself. We have another question from one of your readers, Veshna. If you could write about Lou now, what would she be doing as a career? Oh, Lou. Um, she would be just the most successful food blogger out there. I just love, I like that I set, I like that she's set up for success mm-hmm. now. I think she's going to struggle with, I think all parents struggle with how to work and raise their kids, whether they're moms or dads. And I think she's going to continue to struggle with that. But I do like thinking of her as out there making her way in this, in this, in this world. So I think she's probably on her fourth cookbook by now. I think her blog is super successful. I think she's her kids are going to turn into teenagers, and that's going to be hard for her, but she's going to be okay. The Food Network is circling for a TV show. Like, that's exactly. what I see for Lou. Yeah. I see her on, I see her on yeah, screen. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I like that. We'll do that. Each episode, we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? It's a book they've either always meant to read or one they started reading and never finished. 
So Meg, what is your literary white whale? I have been ready for this question because I'm such a fan of the podcast. I've already listened to all of the other episodes, so I'm ready. Thank you. And I am going to go with Harry Potter because I have never read a Harry Potter. Oh, my gosh. Which is ridiculous because I have three kids, two of them. One of them wasn't a huge fan, and two of them were very big fans. And I read a lot of middle grade and young adult fiction anyway because I enjoy it, and I have just never read Harry Potter and I don't know why I just I just haven't done it so wow and maybe this summer maybe this summer I'm just going to work my way through all of them we have multiple copies around my house and I think it's time I think I'm ready Meg we are in shock over here our jaws <laughs> dropped I know it's embarrassing it's no, really it's, a, it's really it's a ridiculous good one. it's a good literary white whale I was going to go with Anna Karenina which I also haven't read but I think Harry Potter is a much more likely thing that I, m- I might read someday yeah, and Anna Karenina be... is mine. That's the one that's been haunting me. So. <laughs> well, and it'll be so satisfying once you read Harry Potter. It's so good. I know, and maybe my kids will read it, reread it Aww. with me, and I can talk about it with them. It's just, it's very strange to me that I just have never, just haven't done it. It's well, a lot of, it's a lot of pages to get through. Right, there's a lot there. It's true. But it goes quick, so. I'm excited for you. I wish I had the chance to read Harry Potter for the first time again. You can read. You can reread this number too, and we'll just okay. <laughs> we'll meet back here in six months. <laughs> Great. Well, Meg, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciated um, having the opportunity to read The Islanders and talk to you about it. And do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your next book and when it's coming out? Sure. Yes, my next book is called Two Truths and a Lie. It's coming out in May. This May, May twenty sixth. And it takes place in the town where I live, which is a little scary. And it involves a group of snarky mothers, which are n- nobody like, not based on anybody real, I promise. <laughs> and a stranger who comes to town with a dark past and a 17-year-old girl who has a secret online identity. Mm. And all of these three stories come wow. together. That sounds great. I'm riveted already. And I live in a beautiful coastal town that is not beautiful right now, but in the summer is gorgeous. So it's, it's, it was really fun to write all the summer scenes and be familiar with everything oh, I was writing about. Sounds awesome. We can't wait to read it, Meg. It sounds really suspenseful. It does have a lot more suspense than anything I've written before. It, it does. Awesome. Yep. I'm well, down. We can't wait. Yeah. Thank you again, Meg. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a really big fan of the podcast. I think you guys are doing a great job. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Have you written a review on iTunes for us? <laughs> Not yet, but I will. I'll do that right after this. You're the best, Meg. Absolutely. (laughs) That was Meg Mitchell-Moore, whose book, The Islanders, is out now. To find out more about Meg's book and how to buy it, head over to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a rating and leave a review. A good one. (laughs) Or a bad one. We accept constructive criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You will hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with New York Times bestselling author Bruce Feiler about his memoir, Council of Dads, which is now an NBC primetime television series. Oh, my God. That's so cool. Yeah. Keep up with our reading community in between episodes. You can follow at Book Club Girl on Instagram. And you can follow me on Instagram, too, at Eliza is reading to see what I'm reading and loving. And follow me at Tavia Reads for more bookstagram goodness. We'll be back in the studio in a couple of weeks to talk with beloved novelist Susan Wiggs about her novel, The Oysterville Sewing Circle. If you have questions for Susan, do post them in the comments on our Book Club Girls Facebook group or call us at 212-207-7336. 
You can also send us an email, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if your question gets asked on the podcast, we'll send you a free book. What? That's amazing. Yes. Yes. Because we love our listeners so much. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go, a big thank you to Jordan Goss-Perret, who produced today's episode, to Tom Eaton with Universal Noise Storage for recording our interview, to our terrific engineer, Zach Grappone, to Andrew Gibley, our honorary book club guy, and to Molly Waxman, who's available for guided walking tours of Vlog Island. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading. Lou found a lovely little cafe to work in. It was called Joy Bombs. The coffee was phenomenal. The Wi-Fi was free, password making whoopee. And the specialty small whoopee pies that came in a variety of flavors were to die for. She bought a sampler plate, coffee for herself, juice for the boys. After the incident with Sebastian and Anthony, Lou wanted the boys within sight even while she was working. So Chase had the family iPad and Sebastian had Lou's phone. Jeremy didn't like the boys to be on electronics at all, not at their ages. He didn't think it was good for their brain development. In fact, he'd brought it up just the day before, before he'd left again for the hospital. Lou didn't think it was good for the boys' brain development either, but it was easier to have a zero-tolerance policy about electronics when you worked 16-hour shifts and sometimes slept at the hospital. They spread out at the table, and Lou began to write. Readers, let's talk mozzarella and tomatoes. I don't know if you're lucky enough to have fresh tomatoes where you are. It's early in the season for many. Here in the Midwest, we're still waiting for our first batches. My garden is telling me that July looks promising. If you have them, by all means, use them. But remember what Dinner by Dad always tells you. A good canned tomato, and there are some, see my affiliate links, is way better than one of those waxy-looking villains from your produce section. Lou wasn't sure if she'd do the mozzarella and tomatoes for dinner tonight, but she'd definitely make ice cream for dessert. She'd brought her ice cream maker with her for the summer. The boys would go ballistic. Leo churned his own ice cream, of course. Fresh strawberry in the summer, peppermint stick closer to the holidays. Everything was seasonal on Dinner by Dad, and local whenever possible. Maybe she could use the balsamic vinegar from the tomatoes to make a glaze to go on top. Yes. Lou had begun the blog as a hobby, sort of a lark, when the kids were really little, a way to pass the time and keep her mind sharp while they napped. She'd tossed up a few recipes, written a little bit of background for them, talked about her kids, her home, the usual, yawn, yawn. Then she'd searched some other mommy blogs and realized that stay-at-home mom bloggers were a dime a dozen, cheaper even. She could probably get a dozen for a nickel. Stay-at-home dads, though, less common. Stay-at-home dads were sexy, warm-hearted, exotic. And a stay-at-home dad who could cook, who laid a warm and nutritious meal before his two sons and his fingers-to-the-bone attorney wife each night? A dad who took the bacon his wife brought home, fried it up in a pan, broke it over an arugula salad topped by a perfectly poached farmhouse egg and homemade Parmesan croutons? A dad who discovered 
and then wrote about such creative ways to conceal shredded zucchini and chia seeds that his sons never even for a second guessed they were there? That guy was worth real money. So she became Leo. Leo was super upfront with his readers about his struggles as a sad. The loneliness, the loss of identity, the insecurity, the way he felt after school drop-off when the moms clustered together and never thought to invite him in on their conversations. Sure, they waved and said hello, but he never really, truly felt a part of things. He was an interloper, an intruder, an outsider. In the kitchen, though, he felt as at home as a duck in water. The blog started to take off. The page views grew and grew, 50,000 a month, then 100,000, then 200,000. Advertisers started approaching. A few brands popped up to gauge interest about sponsored posts. Then it was more than a few. It got so that Lou could pick and choose among them, agreeing to a sponsored post only when she thought it was something Leo's readers would genuinely believe in. After a time, Dinner by Dad's family felt as familiar to Lou sometimes more than her own. Surprise, it's Tavia and Eliza, and we have a fun bonus for you this week. It's a clip from one of our favorite podcasts, The Satellite Sisters. Featuring five sisters, they recap each week in an hour of provocative and funny opinions, anecdotes, and updates. We know you'll like Julie, Liz, Sheila, Monica, and Leanne as much as we do. Liz, I'm thinking about that um, potato chip bag. I feel like if you strung that up around your mouth, that might be good. <laughs> you could accomplish several things. Okay. Now Saving you're thinking, her- sister. Now you're thinking. <laughs> so, um, you know, I did post yesterday in the Satellite Sisters Facebook group. We have a lot of new members, and I can see why. People want a safe place to exchange information and anxieties and worries and hopes and thoughts. And I did a little live yesterday and asked people, how are you doing? And we have hundreds of answers there. They're so thoughtful. I would encourage you, if you're looking for some kind of connection, if you're looking to you know, find some solace in other people's experiences or just know that you're not alone, to join our Facebook group page. It's a private group, so you can post whatever you want there. We don't share outside that page, you know, and uh, you, you may find what you're looking for there. Um, but first, we have a lot of people, Julie, as you said, in our community who are essential workers, and yes, they're posting nurses, doctors, pharmacists, grocery workers. We have a hardware store owner. She's double dipping. We have 911 and crisis line operators working over there. Yeah, yeah. And I think the comments that struck me was that they are just having a completely different experience during this than we are. They are not staying at home. It's completely the opposite for them. They're terrified. They're, you know, one nurse said, I I don't even want to go. She said, I'm going to my shift. I'm worried about it, is what she said. You know, they they are going in and they are doing that hard work. And that really struck me that they can't stay at home. They're not having this stay at home experience. So it's and the courage that they have going to work every single day is amazing. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So thank you for all you're doing. I, you know, um, Kate, there is a, is a crisis line worker and that the news stories I've seen initially about, you know, victims of de- domestic violence. This is really a very difficult time for them to be forced to 
stay at home with their with their abuser. She said they are seeing an increase in calls. So, Kate, we're thinking of you. That is really hard work and really important work. So we're thinking of, of you. Um, as you said, a lot of our satellite sisters and misters are caring for aging parents. And that is very trying if you can't physically go see them or you have to make really tough calls on, I guess I am going to take them to this doctor's appointment, even though it might expose me or they're trying to stay in the same house with them, but really limit exposure. That is very difficult. We are thinking for you. Same thing with children with health issues or special needs, adult children uh, in particular that said, you know, they're used to having some kind of freedom and now they really have to think about that. And then a lot of our people in our community, what are they doing? They're up in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> They're walking two or three times a day. Their dogs are exhausted. They're stressed. <laughs> They're stress cleaning. We believe yeah. in that yes. before yes. it. Uh, they're discovering meditation, like everybody is trying to figure out a healthy way to soothe the anxiety. So uh, it's just a lot of anxiety out there. I mean, this is a this is a really stressful time. I, I yeah. it doesn't seem like it should be that bad just staying at home, but there are a lot of big question marks out there. So thank you for those thoughtful responses. I'm trying to read them all, but I appreciate it. It's a good place to share. Get it out yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, I have to admit, Leanne, that this morning when I started to read through all of those, they're so thoughtful. Like, it really made me cry. It yeah. just really did. You know, but I do have a sense that, you know, in some cases, we just, we have no choice but to be strong. You know, uh, I mean, we can't give in to all the stress. I mean, that, that you know, our satellite sisters, you know, the sisters, our lives. I mean, we have people around us that need us, you know. I mean, I know in my own life, I know my husband needs me. He's trying to still run a business and, you know, business all over the world is terrible and it's terrible. Hard. It's yeah. and it's hard, you know, and it's hard and terrible. I mean, your families need us, you know, and that they need you to be strong. They don't, they don't need you to be stressed out, even if you are stressed out. And uh, your, our communities need that. You know, I, I work with an agency here. You know, a lot of our child care centers have had to shut, uh, shut their doors, because, either because of the virus or because that parents aren't bringing the kids to the, to the centers. So, you know, everybody needs us to be strong. And that's, that's a hard thing to do. So, and in the meantime, I'm trying to run Nana Academy, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 